0: Welcome, 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 everyone, to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. It's been a while, but we're back. We're happy, and I think you'll be happy, too. My name is Ali Tabibian. As usual, you'll find plenty of supplemental information in the episode notes. Today, we're going to get familiar with one of the earliest and most focused investors in the future of transportation, Trucks Venture Capital, Trucks.vc was founded a few years ago by individuals with a personal history of investing, of interest, of authorship, and also of intellectual property, legal work in the automotive space. Trucks invest in uh, companies at their formative stages, uh, typically very early, and their track record of finding the winners has been really quite impressive. Here's an example of some of the entities in their portfolio. Aurora Labs, which is a software company. They uh, have been a longtime investor in May Mobility, an autonomous shuttle company with, with actual operating shuttles, uh, and with a recent round of investment from BMW and Toyota. And they've had exits such as Newtonomy, which was acquired by automotive supplier Delphi for about four hundred fifty million in twenty seventeen as one and uh, really was one of the earliest big exits in this space. Our guest is General Partner Riley Brennan. And we taped this episode at their offices in the south of Market neighborhood of San Francisco. Riley and I first met about three years ago when he was the director of the Stanford Auto Lab. He was also teaching a course on entrepreneurship in the transportation industry at Stanford. And uh, there's a fair bit of background about Riley and trucks in the interview. So I won't do as much of it as I normally do in the introduction. Let's get to it. Tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com. Great. Riley Brennan, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Thanks so much, Ellie, for having me. I really appreciate it. It's obviously our pleasure. And uh, one of the things I wanted to let our our readers know that we've uh, first met each other, what, probably three or four years ago, right, when you were director of the Stanford Auto Lab.
1: That's right. We met at Stanford one day, probably in the garage. And uh, you went to Stanford, right? That's why you were hanging around. And yeah, that was a great, I think that was three or four years ago. Yeah. That's exactly right.
0: I was actually introduced through somebody I knew at the engineering department, and mm-hmm. I sort of expressed some interest and said, Let me tell you who you need to know. Yeah. And it's turned out to be the right introduction yeah. <laughs> for them to have made. Yeah. Maybe Riley, um, before we get to that point where we met, well, you were you were the director of the Stanford Auto Lab. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you wound up in the world of auto as well. I know you've got sure. a journalism background. There's just a lot of richness there sure. that you could share with our listeners.
1: Yeah, well, at a high level, I would say you know I was raised by a single mother and educated by the Jesuits. That's kind of how I think about my foundation. But I grew up in Detroit. I always loved cars. I was one of those kids that had you know pictures and posters of cars on the wall, red car magazines. And so I was obsessed with being a part of the car industry, as really obsessed with the object of vehicles. Since I grew up in the 80s, there weren't a lot of great American cars. For me, it was all about Volkswagens and Audis and Porsches, things like that. And I went to the University of Michigan. I got a job my freshman year as a motor gopher at a magazine called Automobile, which meant that I got to wash and gas cars that they were reviewing for the magazine for $7 an hour, which was the best (laughs) way to make $7 an hour legally in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that's what I did my whole university life. And it was really my first entree into the automobile business. And I loved every minute of it. And after school, I went to General Motors for three years. I worked there in mostly the racing part of the organization. And so I got to go to racing, you know, go to events every weekend. I was a part of the endurance sports car program, which is the Corvettes that go to Le Mans. I did a year of NASCAR. Love that. And I was in the car world, really in communications and marketing and journalism for the first 10 years of my life. And then about 10 years ago, we moved out to California trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And it opened me up to things like Stanford and really ultimately other things like software and robotics and then ultimately investing. So I've always been in the car world or the transportation world, just coming at it from different angles.
0: That's you know, pretty interesting, because when people think about what's going on in the Valley, the presumption is everybody's running around with an engineering degree. Uh, tell me a little bit about what were the strengths and challenges? of coming from that different background where you where you just had a very different view and not necessarily a technology-based sure. one.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not an engineer, and I didn't go to school for engineering. Although, oddly enough, right now, I and for the last six or seven years, have been teaching in Stanford School of Engineering. When I arrived in the Bay Area, I knew only three or four people. And one of those people was a guy named David Kelly, who is the founder of a company called IDEO and who helped start the Stanford D School. And he and I had lunch a few times. And he said, hey, there's this thing that is starting at Stanford. And there's all this car stuff. And you know they need somebody to go in and be a part of it who can help organize it. And that was essentially the job I took when I moved to California, was helping Stanford's automotive things kind of get up and, and get running. So I learned a lot of stuff at Stanford, including how to fundraise. And that was, for me, an entree into robotics, into engineering, into software, uh, really into seeing how researchers were trying to build companies. And the insight that I took from those years was, man, it's really hard for researchers to start a company because nobody wants to give them financing. And nowadays, it seems like everybody can get a trillion dollars for their (laughs) autonomous strawberry picking robot. But- In 2010 through 2015, it was not that way. And so my simple insight was, gosh, there's a lot of smart people here who are leaving labs specifically at Stanford, but at other places as well. And they're not able to get financing. And I'm going to go and get them their first check. I'm going to help them build their business and get off the ground. And that's ultimately what led me to start my own fund, which is called Trucks, which I have with two partners, Jeff and Kate. And that's what I've been doing, really, since since you and I met, is doing that. So I invest very early stage, usually the first check into a founder's company that's trying to change transportation.
0: That's an excellent synopsis. Thank you. You know, the, when you say change uh, transportation, it reminds me of a publication I read religiously, and it comes out Sunday nights, and it's Future of Transportation, and it comes from Riley
1: Brennan. Right. Tell us about why you started that uh, sure. that uh, that distribution. Yeah. Well, we all have our learning mechanisms. I don't know what your preferred learning mechanism is. But one of my only reliable ones seems to be reading and digesting something enough where I could write a little bit on it. And so I primarily started doing that because there were enough things going on that if I didn't find a way to condense it. I didn't really understand what was going on. And this was five years ago now. Uh, so I started in the fall of 2014. And it was at the, that time, there were only a handful of deals per week, only a handful of news items. Now it starts with three or 400 items per week mm-hmm. that ultimately become 30 things in FOT when you read it on Sunday. And so I use it as a way for myself to understand what's going on. And I write it fortunately there's a benefit for other people like yourself and you know it's not read by a lot of people it's read by about 10,000 people but it's the right 10,000 right. you know it's it's CEOs of car companies and a lot of the bankers and analysts mm-hmm. and certainly a lot of founders read it and so for me even if zero people read it it would be vitally important for me to do in fact i consider it like you would think of a martial arts practice in that you you need to do it every week, and the doing it actually feels really good. And it is fatiguing to do it because it it requires obviously a lot of reading, a, a lot of thinking about what you're going to write, and then the actual production of it tires me out. But it's a good kind of tired. So by the time I send it Sunday night, close the computer, go to bed, there's a good feeling about satisfaction. Kind of, yeah, you you finish something that's really meaningful, and you can go to bed with the notion that you you feel like you kind of got the handle on the last seven days of stuff. And I like that feeling. That's
0: excellent. That's excellent. And for those listeners who are interested in subscribing, if you just go to trucks.vc, the link is right at the top. Yep. And you can subscribe to it and you and you really should. Just as an aside, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that. My learning mechanism is to teach. Mm-hmm. And I really know that I understand something when I can teach it. And I think for me, Writing the occasional thought piece, whether it was on Tesla or on the future of autonomy, etc., that I noticed is what forces me to organize my thoughts. So that's a similar mechanism, absolutely, uh, to, yeah, to what you're describing. Trucks VC, why, why trucks, why, why that name? And this is I'm pointing you to the genesis of, of how you got mm-hmm. into on a very specific basis. How you
1: how sure. sort of kicked it off? Yeah. Well, the name, I think, primarily for us, we didn't want to put our name on the door. Uh, maybe it's because we're all midwesterners and it right. didn't want to didn't want it to be our last names. So that's one fundamental idea. And we also want it to be generally automotive but not too specific. And uh, my partner Jeff always tells a story that the word truck was probably the second word he ever said. Um, <laughs> and there's a bunch of other things we love about that word. I love proper names that end in S, and there's a, a few other qualities to the word trucks that that we really like. There's a couple songs from some artists we like with, that feature the word trucks. So that's it. And then maybe a, from an investment perspective, we have a belief that commercial vehicles are some of the best initial markets for technology. They've historically always paid a lot of money for transportation services. They have a need both for risk and for other aspects where you want to introduce technology. So we don't only invest in trucking companies, but we certainly love logistics and trucking. And about a third of our portfolio likely touches trucking in Mm -hmm. some way.
0: Excellent. What was your first investment?
1: The first investment out of the fund was Zendrive, which is, I always think, you know, I, I think of funds almost like you would think of a record label in that we're a school of thought. And for us, Zendrive, we didn't plan it this way, but almost represents kind of all the things that that we think about when we think about trucks. So fundamentally, Zendrive takes data off of a smartphone and tries to make an assessment of how much risk the driver is taking on. So in a a good example would be you know, a delivery man is on the way to a job and he happens to be looking at his phone. Uh, looking at Facebook or something like that while he's driving. And so the the use of a smartphone in a vehicle is now highly correlated to risk, right? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know about that unless you have a maybe a cabin sensor, a camera pointing to the driver, or Zendrive's brilliance was as an SDK in other apps. So Zendrive's running in the background, picking up a lot of data about Braking and steering, but also what's going on with the driver if they're picking up their phone and things like that. It's grown, uh, has a great CEO, and is really emblematic of a lot of the things we we love at Trucks. So, it's probably for us one of the one companies that's almost an anti-autonomous vehicle company. You know, we invest in a lot of autonomy, but Zendrive is representative of humans and technology coming together and the problems that. That are you know brought to bear when we use technology all day in the cabin. That's really what ZenDrive is about.
0: Okay, excellent. And it really is about the future of transportation, right? It's not necessarily about autonomy. It can be about sure. business models. It can be about a lot of other things. Yeah, than just for us, you know,
1: right. you know, it's transportation is our is is a wide tent. So we invest in things that move, like automated trucks and automated shuttles and things like that. But we also, you know, one of our recent investments is a new type of car wash that doesn't use any soap or chemicals. So we have a pretty broad view of what it means and some of the secondary impacts. We even have a company now that in some ways you could describe as more of a real estate company because they're doing curbside management for vehicles that pull up to the curb and want to interact with the curb some way, which is not about moving vehicles at all. It's about fixed things like curb spaces. So that's that's a broad tent. But the only thing we do is transportation. But we like to put an asterisk on that, which is that all those things don't necessarily have to move with four wheels.
0: Excellent. So tell me, let's roll the roll history forward a little bit. What were the next few investments? Mm-hmm. What kind of themes were developing in the beginning? And how yeah. do, those, do those themes carry forward to today? Or, or is there a different composition to what you're doing?
1: In the beginning, uh, we were starting to see some early robotics teams building automated vehicles. So one of our investments in the early part of the fund was in Newtonomy, which was a, a, a research team that was ultimately acquired by Delphi and is now a big part of their Active group. And was a at that point, a few early bets on autonomy were really robo-taxi companies. And what I would say has changed there significantly is We don't see as many robo-taxi startups these days. What we see is that that idea of autonomy has become more and more structured. So of the robo-taxi founders that didn't make it three or four years ago, they've now moved into trucking. And I would imagine that a few of the trucking startups that don't make it will move into ag or mining over time. So it seems like the trend line in autonomy is moving more and more structured primarily because you can get to market faster and they come to those realizations later. In the early days before Cruise was acquired, um, which was midway through 2016, it was still wild, wild west in terms of valuations were relatively low. There weren't that many competitors. There might have been one or two idea, one or two teams working on an idea. To get back to your question, autonomy was an early bet. Another one was a company called Nauto, which is doing uh, really a Driver and forward-facing camera, again in the risk category, and then another one would be Roadster, which does e-commerce for car dealers. So we had a pretty wide diversity even in the first few investments there in in 2015, 16.
0: It, It was very impressive, and one of the one of the reasons I I was glad to meet you and follow Trucks was that even though it was only a few years ago, you really were one of the very few people. That was focused on future of transportation and substantially autonomy. I guess you can go to Detroit. There are a couple funds there. One sure. or two funds. There are people who had sidecars essentially yeah. as investors. But it was really uh, it was amazing how much you were focused on it uh, and how early. But we're talking about four years, three or four years. You know, sure. it's still a short amount yeah. of time between when these things started happening. Uh, Cruz printed a big big ticket. And that brought all the bankers and other VCs out of the Word to proclaim how, how interested they had always been right. you know, in the States, right. in, in, in the space, as, it, as usually happens. And here we are, you know, barely three years later. And it's, yep. uh, the, the market has gotten a lot deeper, a lot more competitive, but also, I think, going through maybe the first bits
1: of rationalization. Sure. Do you sense that as well? Yeah, we've seen prices come down in certain categories of areas where we invest, So for example, if you just take the autonomy category, prices have come down about 30% over the last 18 months. And one of the contributing factors to the prices going up in 2017, which was when we saw the highest Mm -hmm. prices, this isn't entirely all of them. But I would say one of the factors in the summer of 17 was it was the first wave of a lot of departures from Uber. So if you remember all the troubles that Uber was having with their CEO in the spring and summer of that year, a lot of good people left the company in that time. And many of them, at least, I would say, at least a dozen ideas sprouted from people who had left in that first wave. And they were all putting slide decks together and all raising money in the summer of 17. And the prices were really high. You know we're talking prices that you'd probably think were series A prices mm-hmm. or maybe even series B prices, and they were doing seed rounds. So that was, for us, the peak of pre-money valuation expectations from a very hot market. Since that time, they've come down in autonomy. But there are other categories that maybe are more expensive. For example, last year, we saw 12 companies building automotive simulators and those prices started to go up towards the end of 2018. So there's pockets of transportation that go up and down. And as long as you stay close to the market, you can kind of feel them happening over time. And all of a sudden, you have four or five companies in the same spot in 60 days.
0: It is an interesting history. And if I look at, I mean, your portfolio has been diverse from the beginning, but it probably had a little bit more robotics in it, Mm -hmm. than it even does today, right? right? You're a little bit more at the component and business model level that you're investing. And I think that's really consistent with what the success markers in the space have been. I mean, if you look at, I remember, uh, Riley, I think it was eight years ago that I went to a session at Stanford Law School. And they were saying, the self-driving cars are coming. We got to figure out if they have an accident, whose fault is it, Sure, right? And at that session, they showed that famous uh, Google video with a blind gentleman who was being driven around by the Google Prius. Right. Uh, it was yeah, it was a Google Prius car. And where is it? Where is everybody, mm-hmm. right? Where are these cars, right? They're still not around. But what's fascinating in that same time frame, you and I have stopped using our car, uh, use our car a lot less. We basically don't use taxis anymore. But we use all these other alternative modes of transportation, sure. whether it be Uber, Zipcar, or, or Turo, or whoever else. You want to you want to mention so the business model changes and in innovation They have really yeah. outstripped the technical innovations over the last uh, yeah. several years,
1: and they're very geographic. You know, the if you look, for example, take your your point about ride hailing. Ride hailing is fundamentally a geographic phenomenon. If you look at the heat maps of where rides originate and where they um, where they end, you're really looking at particular pockets around airports and dense cities Mm -hmm. and a little bit into the suburbs. Automated vehicles, for the most part, in a robo-taxi environment will follow that same path. That's the most likely scenario. So there are some impacts on that that change transportation. In the past, if you were an automaker, you were selling a global platform, and it really didn't matter too much if your buyer was living in the exurbs or the city, they were buying the same Toyota Corolla. Now, that's actually a fundamentally different idea. And so if we take this one step further and say, you know, how could I make an estimate of when car dealerships are going to go out of business based on these trends? I'm not a public equities investor, but let's say, for example, we were trying to figure out, do I sell my AutoNation stock? And AutoNation historically has been a car dealer group in the United States with a ton of car dealerships, usually in urban or slightly suburban areas. Mm -hmm. I think one of the trend lines you could say, both for ride hailing and potentially for AVs, is that a dealer group that was highly aligned with those urban areas is going to suffer more of those trends over the coming decades, as opposed to, let's say, another car dealer group that only sold pickup trucks in rural areas. There's actually a, a big dealer group called Lithia that does just that. Right. And they're probably in a in a much higher water position because the geography they're associated with is much different than the urban areas. So a friend of mine named Sven Biker, who I think you might have met at Stanford, you know, over the, the course of the last few years, you know, has always said it's not a question of when autonomous vehicles will happen, it's where. And so I think, I always think of that. And these technology changes right now are having a significant impact in certain areas. And the time is really, it's a time question as it relates to those geographies.
0: Those are some excellent insights. Riley, uh, map those into some of your specific investments uh, for us. Should we talk about maybe some of the specific sure. things in your portfolio? Yeah. Plenty of exciting companies. In fact, uh, Bear Flag Robotics was the subject of one of our podcast episodes yeah, as that's well. Yeah, right.
1: You had the founders
0: on. We did. And in fact, one of our affiliates owns a substantial amount of the Central Valley... Uh, nut f- farms. Nut right? farms. Yeah,
1: exactly. Quite a, quite
0: a substantial business yeah. now. And they were Bear Flag was one of the people who went out there and is yeah. trying to map their farm, uh, their capabilities into those, yeah. into those farms. Great. So I have the list here. By, by the way, May Mobility was featured in our um, CES podcast. Oh, the right, CES remember asked, that. Us to, asked us yeah. to do an episode from their floor, so, mm-hmm. I, uh, so I grabbed May. Yeah. And it was just before they announced their recent big, big uh, investment from, I believe, Toyota, mm-hmm.
1: NBMW, Toyota and BMW. Toyota and BMW are some BMW. of the that's investors great. they make. exactly.
0: So, so pick any yeah. any ones you want and, sure. and use them as a way to to sure. tell people what yeah. you're looking for and, and how it maps into some of these thoughts on the industry yeah. that
1: you just gave us. Well, we used to look for ideas and then hope people would walk in the door with those ideas. And I found that over time, we tend to make mistakes when if we do that. Because you know, if you and I got together and said, man, what the world really needs is this, you, the tendency is the first person to walk in the door, you're probably predisposed to say yes to that idea, even if there's a bunch of other problems with it. Uh, what we prefer now is to ride along with an entrepreneur who has a great point of view that we might not even have been thinking about. For example, the we just invested in a car wash company, I told you, that doesn't use soap or chemicals. Now, we never came up with that idea, but we met the founders and wanted to back their vision, so we did. Uh, but some of the companies in the portfolio um, that might be worth chatting about, May is a good example, because uh, you know we, were, uh, we led the first round in May, and two really talented researchers in Ed Olson and Steve Ozar, who were putting together the idea. Uh, they needed somebody to commercialize the idea early on. And uh, we were part of the team that helped them find Allison Malik, their COO. And one of the things that Trucks does, which I believe is somewhat unusual, is that we'll take on an incomplete team. So some people will say, oh, i you you guys actually need a COO or some other function which you don't have. So I'm going to tell you no until you find that for me. And in certain cases, we will actually commit to teams and help them find that additional co-founder. And that's one of the parts about May, which I find to be quite fascinating, is that we were part of the architecture of the, the early sort of executive finding function, right? That team's focused on Uh, urban shuttle AV. So their their customer is either a property owner or a municipality that wants to run shuttles in a particularly dense, low-speed environment. And what we find interesting about that is May is actually running the same route over and over and over again. So they're not not like Waymo or Cruise, who ultimately you'll be able to get a Waymo or Cruise by calling an app like you do with Uber and telling it where you want to go may run circulator routes, so they go to the same stops. And that means they can get a lot better at those by doing it day in and day out hundreds of times. And they can also hang sensors in the infrastructure if they want. So they can, you know, if there's an intersection where there's always kind of a problem seeing around a truck to see a traffic light, they could just hang a camera or hang a sensor to see that. And we like the just pragmatic simplicity of that idea. They've actually made a pretty good amount of progress in selling that idea into cities. So they're officially in three cities that they've announced, Detroit, Columbus, and Providence, Rhode Island. There's a few more that are coming this year. And we it's a highly technical team, and, and we really like them. Uh, I also am from Michigan, and they're headquartered in Ann Arbor. Uh, we have two Ann Arbor companies now. So that makes me feel good in some sort of overall Michigan way. And I wish we had more companies there. So if you're if you're a founder listening to this and you're in the state of Michigan, please give us a call. And then another one that might be representative is Starsky Robotics because it, like May, it's a structured environment. They're not going to any address. It's a Class Eight truck that is moving goods over long distances. So typically these are long haul routes where you might be moving from a distribution center to a distribution center, and there's a lot of interesting qualities that autonomy brings to bear on that. One is you can run the trucks longer than the typical 14-hour period that a truck driver could could do. Right now, a truck driver in the US can do uh, 11 hours in a row or 14 hours within a 24-hour period. So the trucks are kind of sitting fallow half the day because of that. Autonomy changes the economics of that dramatically. And you know The other benefit of it from a testing environment is if you're not carrying passengers, you know, don't have too much of a risk if you want to pull over and um, restart the engine or, or fix something on the vehicle. Um, whereas if you're running a prototype robotaxi service, you have people sitting in the back who need to get to their meeting. Um, when you do commercial AV like that, like trucking or logistics, it's a much different kind of testing environment, which is has its own benefits.
0: Absolutely. And a lot of the equipment that you need to make it run can fit within the form and cost factor of a sure. truck. Sure.
1: There's a lot of and room just, in the back yeah, of the truck. Exactly. A lot
0: <laughs> of room and it sits high.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, nice field of view. But also, um, you know, what is a tr- A truck will cost you a few hundred thousand dollars depending on what you order. Right. right. So you can tack on $30,000 worth of additional Correct. sensing. Right. And you're still within the zone of potential uh, commercial viability. Yeah you can't add $2000 worth of equipment to a consumer vehicle without it falling out of out of that range of commercial viability yeah. right because that adds $5000 of cost to the consumer by the time it gets to them and you know most people will order uh, the stereo and the nice leather uh, if you're asking them for that kind of money if it's going to be something that helps them a little bit but you still got to keep your you know hands on the wheel and you still got to be like right i mean
1: that's right <laughs> i think the that yeah. that point is for passenger vehicles is really important because it's showing the strength of what the auto industry would call ADAS or Advanced Driver Assistance Mm -hmm. Systems, which if you think about just the longitudinal control of if you have an automatic cruise control system that can basically always keep the same distance between you and the car in front of it, in some cases can come all the way to zero and crab along in traffic and things like that. You know, those systems are in the hundreds to thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. and are incredibly valuable to consumers once they've used them, almost like the way you maybe felt about a TV remote control when you first got one. There's just simply no going back after you have a system like that. And I think that the coming 5 to 10 years are going to prove that every vehicle is going to be outfitted with that level of ADAS capability for those kinds of prices when we get into passenger vehicles that need full autonomy my view on this is we are much further out for passenger vehicles getting full autonomy or even level 4 autonomy and i mean in the order of 15 20 years and the spend required from a manufacturer supplier perspective to do that is in the tens of billions of dollars per company so I'm very optimistic about technology and vehicles making us safer. I'm hugely pessimistic about wild timelines that when CEOs get up at TED and they say, you know, our robotaxi system is going to be ready in 2020. I think that most of those CEOs who made those pronouncements were thinking, oh, by the time 2020 rolls around, I'm going to be playing golf in Palm Springs. So what do I care if it's true or not?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, in finance, uh, for long-term financings, there's uh, something that says uh, IBGYBG, which stands for I'll be gone, you'll be gone. Yes, exactly. So for a 30-year bond that with balloon interest payments at there the you end, go. you know, we'll all there be gone. Go. <laughs> so <There you laughs> go. we can make a statement, whatever. That's
1: not a good management I-B-G. technique. But nevertheless, I think that's what you've seen in a lot of big pronouncements from the car industry. It's very, very true. Uh, you know, I couldn't
0: get them to go on the record, if you will, and do a podcast episode. But actually, I... Talked with a couple of the very high-end uh, manufacturers of, of passenger vehicles, and basically what they said is, safety equipment when it's standard or when it's optional but below about five hundred dollars, people will buy it. Yep. Otherwise, nobody selects it. And an example of that, and it's interesting. You can all listeners, you can all go search a car site for yourself. Mercedes has had radar cruise control since nineteen ninety nine. Go take a look at S class very high-end vehicles that are out there, and search for that option, I think Distronic Plus or whatever it was as an option, it's hard to find a vehicle at that price point where the individual had actually ordered it.
1: That's true. Um, But the auto industry does a pretty good job of bundling, right? So usually what they'll say is like, well, if you want the Bose audio, you also have to get the this and the that, which includes the Radar Cruise because you're into the mid-tier or the premium package. That's correct. And so the take rates on individual options in the car industry are usually low if you just look at the individual take rates. Mm -hmm. If you look at the bundling, which they all do, and they make it so easy for you when you're doing your financing, oh, it's just another $12 a month, right? right?" That's where you usually see it. And then you get into these instances, like we talked about, where somebody realizes, wow, I've got radar cruise control. Wow, this is actually really amazing. When I get my next one, there's no way I'm going to not get that package. That's right.
0: They uh, significantly undersell the uh, fatigue reduction. Uh, right. Uh, benefits of those absolutely. Uh, of those things. I mean, I've had one a car that does these things since the 2015 model year. Wow. Not a Tesla, folks. Yeah. It, it was a Mercedes. That was uh-huh. really the only other person that was delivering it at that time it was an E Class 2015 Mercedes, and I specifically bought that vehicle because I wanted that capability.
1: But now every, I mean, we have a our family car is a Mazda CX five. And it's got radar crews. Toyota across the board in the United States, absolutely. It's kind of permeated everywhere, right? It it really has.
0: Uh, But that one had steering assist. The 2015 actually managed Mm -hmm. the steering for you as well and yelled at you to put your hands on the steering wheel after 10 seconds and all that. And my point was, it was a little disappointing in terms of its ability to drive the car itself. But my god, was the fatigue reduction substantial. Stuck in, you know, commuting from Cupertino right. to San Francisco on a Friday night, two-hour right. drive. Really, it was amazing how much it reduced Absolutely. the fatigue. And I think that that aspect of it is undersold. Let me uh, leave the world of technology a little bit and maybe point to um, two really interesting companies that you're invested
1: in. Both of them that focus on tires. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: should we talk about that a little? Yeah. bit? is that exciting? To yeah, you, to I talk love
1: about I that? love tires. I mean, it, it, okay. to me, it's one of the the weirdly fascinating high water areas for what technology is going to do to the car business. So if you look at what electrification does to traditional vehicles, and specifically the the repair sector, it's actually quite destructive to the average auto body repair shop, the average maintenance shop. If you look at the categories of what type of maintenance is done to a vehicle, you're usually talking about things like brakes and belts and things like that, oil changes, for example. Those are things that your vehicle needs quite regularly and are all significantly negatively impacted by electrification. Mm-hmm. The things like belts and oil are pretty obvious because electric vehicles have far fewer parts and they don't have any oil. So not at least to run the, the, the engine because there's no, there's no engine like you'd expect. It's a motor. But even brakes. So, if you, the powertrain in an EV has a significant impact on braking. And a lot of original Priuses are still running around on their first set of brake pads because they use regenerative braking. So, if I run a brake shop, I'm, even though all cars are going to have brakes in the future, they're using the brakes differently. The one exception of repair and maintenance, which remains, is tires. So, we, as a society, have been doing greater vehicle miles traveled every year. Cars are on the road longer because cars are more durable. So cars are going through more sets of tires over time because we're driving more and keeping the cars longer. And the other thing is electric vehicles eat tires at a faster rate. Because they're better acceleration? Is they're the- heavier. They have more torque right off mm-hmm. the, the line. So some estimates are as high as 25 or 30% greater tire usage rate than a normal internal combustion engine vehicle. So the tire manufacturers actually love electric vehicles for that reason alone, because you're likely to buy a set of tires much faster. Now, they are developing tires that are specific for EVs, which might extend that life. But the consumer perception of those tires early on has been that they haven't been as good. So people have usually optioned no, quote unquote, normal tires for their EVs. So where this leads us is tires are just a really interesting area to focus on. If you're a manufacturer of tires, if you're in the retail sector on tires, if you're in the repair and service sector, and you know car dealerships and those guys have sold tires for decades, they will continue to do so. Our theory is that all these other aspects that are negatively impacted by technology, like oil changes, brakes, belts, things like that, It's going to be really difficult to have those businesses over the coming 10 or 20 years, whereas tires appear to be a much safer place. And so we've put a lot of thought and effort into finding interesting new approaches in tires. We've looked at a lot of startups. Uh, We've made two investments. One is in a commercial truck application called Aperia, which does truck tire inflations. It's actually within the hub itself for large truck tires. And there's some interesting stuff they're building to do to monitor those tires well beyond just tire pressure monitoring that's really fascinating. And then and by hub, you mean in the hub of the wheel? Right? In the hub of the wheel right. itself. It actually will inflate the tire without having to pull over to the side oh, wow. of the road. and OK. So things like that. And then we have a consumer-facing team, which is called Zor, and they do tire delivery. So they're focused just on tire replacement. So if you... Instead of going to the tire shop and waiting in the lobby for four hours, they you can push a button on your phone and schedule it to come to your office, your house, within a tight delivery window. They'll replace the tires. They have basically an entire tire shop in the back of a sprinter van, and the only thing they do is tires. And tires for them are usually a set of four tires or a one as a replacement if you get a puncture or something like that. Tires are average transaction price, you know, is... Five to six hundred dollars. Most people, when I ask, you know, what do you think the most expensive part is in a vehicle? Most people say it's the engine. It's not. You know, it's actually a tire. An engine is a composite of two thousand individual parts, but the most expensive single part spec on a brand new car is typically a tire. And so, there's a lot of value in that. There's a lot of interesting value that's lost in the retail part of this. And so Zor is a direct experience with a consumer that does not have a physical retail store. They come to you, and we think they're going to build a lot of value over the coming years. And they, they have started in Kansas City, where they got to just over a million in run rate, and they're moving it to Dallas this month, actually. They're going to open up Dallas.
0: That's excellent. And so it sounds like that also is a geographically specific concept, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard for that van to go around New York City or San Francisco. But in a suburb, everybody has a nice driveway where the car. Right,
1: right. right. And Zor for, I I would think the Zor exemplar would probably be a company like SafeLite, which changed the dynamics of of window replacement Mm -hmm. by having a nice uniformed experience where the the guy would come to you and replace your your thing. And I believe that those, many of our, our company, but I believe it went franchise eventually, and you can mostly find safe lights nationally. And that would clearly be the objective of Zor long term is you open up more of these really important cities. And for Zor, interestingly enough, the more valuable cities are the ones where you have bedroom communities, where you have people who own two or three vehicles with a garage, and you have bad roads, and you have long commutes. So as luck would have it, for Zor, a lot of America looks like that. But Zoar is probably not as valuable in downtown Manhattan as they would be in the suburbs of Connecticut where people are doing a 45-minute commute into the city, for example. So their their strategy about where to go is usually in that kind of outer ring where people own two or three cars or something like right, that.
0: Right. That's, that's incredible. Uh, Riley, I don't want to overstay our welcome here. And I think we covered most of the things that you and I talked about before we, we started taping. Anything else that we should cover? And don't let that Midwestern uh, modesty get in your way. Go ahead and advertise if you want sure. to about how to get in touch well, with you, you what know, you're looking for. Yeah,
1: we're looking for people with really interesting perspectives on transportation. And um, we like to say we're early or way too early. So we'll back stuff when it's quite early and there's maybe just the, the beginnings of an idea. And we love diverse teams. It's funny over the last six months or seven months maybe we haven't made one investment in California we we've been investing in Seattle area, Kansas City Ann Arbor, Africa, Toronto so when we first started trucks a lot of our investments were really in the Bay Area. It seems like over the last year there's been a blossoming of entrepreneurship in a lot of other areas and Happy to get on an airplane and and meet founders in new areas. So, if you're working on something interesting in transportation and it's early, please give us a a ring.
0: Great. So, that's already a differentiator, just given how broadly you're willing to consider.
1: uh, We'll go early and we'll go anywhere. Early anywhere.
0: And it sounds like you're a lot more likely to invest in people that you've met recently as opposed to a lot of when people think of venture capital, they frequently think if I don't know the person. Already, yep. or at least one tight uh, degree of sure. relationship, already it's not happening. It sounds I, like you're not quite in that category. I,
1: don't, I have a fundamental problem with that because it certainly makes your investments look a lot like your GP's. You know, I just think it, That's a good point. it would be really foolish to do that. Right. It also assumes a lot of your own network. You know, transportation founders specifically come from adjacent industries. If you look, for example, at the founding team of Cruise or the founding team of Newtonomy, those people didn't come from Bosch and GM and Toyota, You know, even though they're significantly having an impact on those companies. They came from video games and research labs and things like that. So for us, the wave of founders is going to come from unusual pockets of the world. And we, we need to be really open to that. As an early, early stage investor, I can't wait to find out about a company in TechCrunch or the New York Times or Venture Beat. I have to know about them almost before they're starting their company. And so I have to be really open to meeting people who I've, I've never met with. It, by the way, it's also important if you do that to have a evaluation system that you really trust. And we do have one now that we really rely on. That allows us to make assessments of really early stage founders and ideas. But if we didn't have that, then I would fall back on, well, I'm just going to trust my network to assess these. Uh, But I don't think that's good for very early stage evaluation. Great, great.
0: Well, thank you so much. uh, Thanks, Ali. Really appreciate it. This has really been nice. Great. Thanks so so much. much. Tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com.